With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the show. Once again, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Kelly Anakin, an Oakland-based funny person, an all-around swell gal who performs stand-up comedy. She's perhaps best known as the host of the Handmaid's Tale recap podcast, Read All Over. I ad-libbed perhaps best known because maybe other people know you for other things and I don't want to, um, you know, restrict your scope and audience. It's entirely entirely possible. I do get around. It's true. We both do. We're both known for any number of things. And I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Welcome. I'm so thrilled to be here. I enjoy giving advice recreationally. So it's pretty exciting to move up to like, what is this, like semi-pro? Exactly. I, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm like, the, you're the pro. I'm like the apprentice. That sounds great. But by the end of it, you'll be able to start branching out onto oh your own and oh. giving advice professionally to anyone you want to call around the street. Look out Everyone in my orbit, I'm about to get real insufferable. I'm looking forward to it. Let me tell you the new limit of insufferableness. This is the insufferable level you need to beat today to be insufferable. This morning I was doing the live chat and somebody wrote in about a neighbor of theirs um, who recently uh, intensely asked them for some of their breast milk to give to their own child and is now like hounding them, sending pictures of their baby saying like, my baby's upset that we can't get your breast milk. Um, so that's the level of insufferable you would have to uh, reach in order to be today's winner. It is regrettable mm-hmm. that this is audio only mm-hmm. because my face is appalled. I, I would suggest to anyone listening to this right now to look in the mirror. My guess is whatever face you yourself are making probably matches Kelly's. The audacity. It's bad. I um, cannot believe that. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's wow. one of those situations where... Unfortunately, I'm sure somebody who's already that level of um, unreasonable will probably not react great to a boundary being set. But there is sometimes a lot of freedom in accepting, you know, this person does not have good judgment. If they are upset with me, that's not my problem. Absolutely Um, not. Where, like, you get to call in all your people. You get to mention to your other neighbors, hey, if you see Tara and she asks about me and my breast milk, please don't tell her anything about me. This is definitely a scenario where I would advise my personal approach to life, embracing radical apathy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wish Tara's baby the best. And I hope Tara is able to get help dealing with her um, misplaced distress. I completely agree. But yeah, when somebody unreasonable is upset with you, that's often fine. It often means you're doing the right thing. (laughs) Um, Like saying, I'd like to keep all my bodily fluids. 
don't ask me about my bodily fluids yeah, again. Yeah, let's keep it in the family. This isn't for others. Yeah, it's, you know, it's got to be a, a real voluntary two-way street. If you want to share any breast milk with somebody else, you need to be very comfortable with it yourself. And if you're not, that's a great reason to say, no, the milk train stops. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, would you like to read our first letter? I would indeed. Subject, reporting high school teacher. Dear Prudence, several months ago, my old high school sent an email saying they were investigating reports of educator abuse of students and asked anyone who had been a victim to get in touch. I have been out of school for 35 years, but I had a sexual relationship with a coach starting when I was 16 and lasting through my first two years in college. I thought it was consensual, but of course now I understand that it was abuse since I was his student and a minor. I debated about contacting them, but it was so long ago, and I thought if he had continued to have relationships with students, someone else would report it. They released their report yesterday. There were six teachers who were found to have abused students, but he wasn't one of them. Three of them are dead, and the rest had already retired. My coach is still there and in his 60s. I feel a responsibility to tell someone, but also don't want to ruin his life. I have spent my life trying to get in a good place after being sexually abused by my stepbrother from the age of nine until I was 16 and really don't want to dredge up all the old feelings. What should I do? So this one is hard for a number of reasons. And I think one of the things that I feel most deeply for this letter writer is just this sense of like the school failed me at the time. And now the burden is kind of on. I feel like the burden is totally on me whether or not this guy continues to try to sleep with students. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really hard. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. So I I think I just want to start by acknowledging um, whether or not you decide that you feel ready to revisit this and to share this. I hope that you can remember that the responsibility for not abusing students lies with him. Um, and, and I think sometimes people can be really like, it is completely on somebody who was victimized by somebody else before to stop it. And I just think that is so much pressure to put on somebody who was victimized as a minor. Um, that may or may not feel like something you have access to at any given moment, but I just want you to remember if you can or if it's hard to remember, write it down. Like, Whatever responsibility here, you only have it towards yourself um, and towards looking out for yourself right now. Um, it, it, the school is trying to outsource uh, the sort of due diligence that they should always have been doing to people who may have been hurt by teachers. And again, I'm not saying that it's bad that they're trying to seek information. I'm just trying to say if you feel like um, it's all up to me now, it's not. There are a lot of layers of, you know, um, background checking and monitoring and and investigating and like just basic safety protocols that the school should have in place. Um, and it is not your fault that the school fell down on the job. Absolutely not. And you may not be the only one who is feeling this way, knowing that this investigation was going on and then not seeing his name. So as isolated as you feel right now, it's highly probable that you're not as alone as you're feeling now in this moment. And I think, you know, I want to give you a hug. This sounds incredibly difficult to be going through. And I think it is really important that the thing that sticks out for me is saying, I don't want to dredge all this up again. There is other abuse in your past. And if you don't want to have to go back here after all of these years, you know, getting yourself right with yourself, you don't have that obligation. 
Yeah. I, I just think that that's the thing to hold on to here right now is like, you know, if it feels like something that you can either afford or have the time for right now, I would encourage you to maybe try to make an appointment with a counselor who helps people talk about process, look at um, childhood abuse, especially, you know, multiple abusers. Um, I, I would want that for you. If you feel like right now getting through the day is kind of my main thing. And I, if I open this door, I don't know that I'd be able to function. I need to put a pin in this one and maybe revisit it a little bit later. That is okay too. Um, I want you to feel like right now you have the freedom to ask for what you need, even if what you need is put a pin in it. Um, Cause I can, I can tell too, your kind of twin anxieties are one. I'm afraid that if I say anything, um, this will come back to feel overwhelming or immediate again in a way that would make it difficult for me to get through the day. And that's a very real concern. And the other fear is I'm afraid that it might ruin his life. That one, I would encourage you to, to whatever degree you can, um, try to let go of, um, you cannot ruin his life, um, if he has abused multiple students, you know, he has already in a very real way ruined his own life from the inside. The only thing is that not a lot of people know about it. Um, and and for him, if he were ever to experience personal or professional or legal repercussions for hurting students, I, I, that would be potentially painful, potentially embarrassing. Um, he might make less money as a result. None of those um, would ruin his life. Um, if, if you have harmed children, sometimes the best thing that can happen to you um, is that that harm comes to light and you face consequences for it because that's the only real way you could ever potentially um, try to make amends for the harm that you have caused and not uh, add on to that harm. So um, I, I would just be really clear about experiencing consequences is not the same thing as a ruined life. Um, he is the one who chose to have, uh, you know, an affair or abuse a, an underage student even after they came of age that didn't magically make it okay. Um, so I, I would just say, even if he got fired, um, even if you found out, uh, the school found out that he was abusing other students currently and he went to jail, um, again, it would be painful. Um, it would be public. He might not like it. Um, he might suffer emotionally, but it would all be as a direct result of choices that he had made. Um, so you you cannot ruin his life. Um, only he can ruin his life in that way. Um, and I just hope that that is something that you can try to remind yourself of. So, you know, if there's anybody in your life that you would like to talk to about this, maybe somebody who has a little bit of distance from the school itself, or somebody whose judgment you trust, somebody who you think would be able to keep a confidence if you said, I want to share this. I haven't yet decided what I want to do. I want you to keep this just between us for now. I hope that you can. If you decide you're not up for that or you're not ready to or there's no one that you trust would allow you to continue deciding whether or not you wanted to share that with others, you know, Maybe find a, a journal that you can keep in a really safe and confidential place. Find a therapist um, who would be able to keep your confidence. Um, that would be what I would encourage you to do. Next. Um, this is not something you have to decide today or tomorrow. Yeah, and I would just tag on to that and say for victims of any kind of abuse, but I think especially sexual abuse, it is a radical act to put your own well-being first. Um, because obviously the person or persons who abused you were not capable of doing this. 
So you can make that choice and you can feel really proud of yourself for making that choice. I, I think that's such a good point because I, I worry sometimes saying like what I said earlier can sound a little bit like, yes, the best thing to do would be to report it. But if you're not feeling up to it, it's an acceptable mm-hmm. second choice. And I think everybody knows that. You know, that's that's sort of the surface level narrative that we're fed is that if anything bad happens to you, you have to report it. And then the implicit thing is if you don't report it, then you're somehow just as bad or worse than the person who hurt you. Right. And that's simply not true. Right. You weren't a bystander. You weren't a witness. You experienced it directly. Mm-hmm. You were abused by multiple people as a child, um, and and they were not acting with your safety or your health um, or your security in mind. So for you to take care of that part of yourself, that, that abused child, again, is not just like an okay substitute for telling the school. It is an act of great good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think that's really crucial. So really, um, I would just say right now, look for what do I need immediately? And if later you decide it feels really crucial to me to get ready and to find a way to be uh, taken care of such that if and when I do decide to tell the school, I, I have support in place, then you can work towards that. Again, always reminding yourself um, that you get to wait until you feel ready. You do not have to do it. Um, And if that day does not come, it is not your fault what he does or doesn't do with his life. Um, But I really hope you're able to talk to somebody about this, even if it's a therapist who you never share it with anybody else. Um, But for you to feel like this is something you are allowed to talk about when you need to, um, I think that that would be really good for you. Um, And I just wish you the best. And I'm so sorry. That's a that's like a maximally distressing circumstance, mm-hmm. right, is, oh, they're doing an investigation. Oh, my God, they missed him. Yep. Um, that just has to feel overwhelming and scary. And, like, my abuse was the one abuse that flew under the radar. Um, and and the, the attendant, like, self-doubt or anxiety that would come up as a result of that is just huge and overwhelming. And I'm so sorry. Yeah, take good care of yourself. Yep. Take good care of yourself. Let us know, you know, uh, if you do see a therapist or decide to start writing any of this down, if that feels helpful to you. Um, If you later decide that you do want to share it, maybe think about what would I need afterwards to take care of myself? Um, Would I maybe want to try to find a way to get in touch with the investigative board uh, anonymously and, and say something like, Um, I have reason to believe that you should investigate this other person. I'm not comfortable sharing more details, um, but I want you to. Like Mm -hmm. that might be one way um, to let them know that there's more research to do, but without um, naming yourself or making yourself uh, identifiable. And good luck. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, this next letter, uh, the subject is one very near and dear to my heart, which is about being in a relationship where sleep becomes an issue and different sleep patterns. And that's a real favorite of mine for for a number of reasons. <laughs> but I value sleep. I cherish it. And I cherish it for, for everyone. So the subject is partner stays up all night. Dear Prudence, my partner is a writer. 
over the last several years, they have gradually preferred to work later and later, staying up and sleeping in late. Their part-time job doesn't require them to get up at any certain time, and they've embraced these irregular hours. I have tried to adjust, but it's hard, particularly when I am working a 9-to-5. I can't count on them to be up in the morning when I need help, or even if we have a planned errand to run. They accommodate my work shifts only when forced to, i.e. when our childcare needs require it. And my sleep is disturbed by them coming to bed late or opening the cupboards or shifting around in bed. For years, I have asked, parentheses, begged, for more compatible schedules, but my partner doesn't see the need for it. Their sole response has been to make a big deal out of it on the rare occasions that I stay up or sleep in late. They like their routine as it is. What can I do to either live with this situation gracefully or make the case for more accommodation on their part? Whew. Yeah, this is challenging. Uh, I didn't know it was a value of mine to have the same sleep schedule as a partner until I no longer had that. And I was like, oh, dear, this is going to require some work. And it sounds to me like this letter writer has kind of been carrying the burden of accommodation. So my first reaction is, you know, I don't know how you make the case more effectively because it sounds like you've been voicing your needs and they've been going unanswered. Um Depending on what your living situation is, if this is possible for you and your partner to experiment with different sleeping spaces, you know, you are in your bedroom because you go to sleep first. If there is a guest bedroom or a couch or some other part of the house where your partner can sleep because they're going to bed super late and, you know, you're at completely different points in your sleep cycle when they're coming to bed. That could be something interesting to experiment with. It sounds like this writer partner is maybe not super receptive to any accommodations, particularly, um, you know, planned errands that they're skipping. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are obviously things that have been set in advance and put on their calendar. And there's just a real lack of concern for the consequences of their actions and the schedule they're keeping. Right. I, yeah, so I, I'm right there with you. I think my main goal at this point is to try to help the letter writer find um, how to live with this situation, in part because I think, at least right now, it is a little bit a waste of your time to keep trying to explain or make a case. I think you've been doing that, and I think it's time to shift into something a little bit more assertive, um, which is not like, fuck off, I hate you, I'm leaving. Um, but as you said, to say something like, as you know, it's really hard for me to sleep through the night when I can hear you moving around in the kitchen or when you come to bed super late. So I want to offer a different option, which is that if you are able to come to bed before, I don't know, say midnight, what, again, feel free to tweak that to whatever time feels reasonable to you. Um, if you're not able to join me in bed by then, um, then I would ask you to find another place to sleep so that we can both get a way to sleep through the night. Um and I think framing it like that, like, here are your two options. Kind of like when you have a toddler and they like, if you ask them what do they want to do, they're like, dress like a firefighter and eat crayons all day. Um, but if you're sort mm, of like, delish. would you like to wear blue or red when you put on your pants? You know, like, yeah, that can be a little bit helpful. Um, yeah. So giving them options. And then I think also moving from um, making a case to saying, like, here are some errands that I need you to handle this week. Um, I will not be handling them. Um, 
feel free to adjust your own schedule as needed. But like, you know, Thursday, picking up the kid from daycare, I need you to do that. Or um, I, we're going to need groceries over the weekend and I need you to find a time to do that um, in, in such a way that's not like I'm trying to micromanage your schedule, but letting it be known. Here are the things that I am no longer willing to do for the both of us because you have not been able to meet me halfway. And the challenge here is being OK with that, I right. think, and giving yourself the permission to say, OK, I know full well based in the past these may not actually get done, mm-hmm. but I am going to be comfortable enough letting go of these tasks and saying, you know, you do this on your time and seeing what happens. Because that freedom for your partner might be part of what they need mm-hmm. to make this a workable, livable, possibly even enjoyable situation for both of you. Right. And I think it's also okay to phrase it in in some emotional terms, too, like – this situation's been really hard for me. Um, in addition to feeling like we're not conscious during most of the same times of the day, um, I also miss um, feeling like I have a partner who's emotionally present for me. Um, so this is, you know, this is hard for me. There may come a day when this feels hard enough um, that we find that we have drifted apart. I really don't want that. Um, but I want to be able to find a balance where I, I'm not... Um, rearranging my own schedule on a regular basis to accommodate yours. I hope that at some point you will choose to try to meet me in the middle. But in the meantime, I'm going to make some slightly different choices. So I'm not saying like look for ways to um, screw your partner over or to say like, fuck you, I basically live alone now. Mm -hmm. But to occasionally look for like times where it's like, look, if I need to make sure that like I eat today and I trust that my partner will either feed themselves or figure something out, Um, I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time and energy doing something that I know won't be reciprocated or appreciated. And speaking of appreciation, they don't get into it in this letter, but the writer says the partner has made a big deal out of it when they have stayed up late or slept late. Right. I'm curious if that has been a positive reaction or a negative reaction, because if they are happy and excited that their partner seems to be on the same schedule as them for a change, that could be another more positive way to frame the situation. It's like, hey, you know how you really like it when we both stay up late and we Mm -hmm. watch a movie Mm -hmm. or something like that. If it's been a negative, that's something else to look at. Um, I have like my fingers crossed that it was a positive interaction. Right. I could read my I think I'm slightly. No, I know. But yeah. But so and it could definitely be like, oh, you know, you always give me a hard time about this. Now look what you're doing. Right. Which is probably not worth getting into because I don't know that you can win that game of one-upmanship. Right. And and I think to, again, try to find a balance between, like, I don't think there will be a lot of joy in trying to micromanage your partner's schedule. Um, but I think also just really clarifying, like, I understand that you love your schedule. One of the consequences is that of that is that it makes it really clear to me that you prefer that particular kind of freedom to parenting as a team. Um, or meeting me around, like, the structure of my day that I can't change, mm-hmm. namely my 9 to 5. Like, you have something that you could change. I have something I cannot. Um, and, I, I, again, you are free to do these things, but one of the tolls that that's going to take on our relationship is increased distance um, and increased isolation. Um, that's not my dream for our marriage. Um, 
and again, I, I think there are ways to talk about that in a way that's not just an implicit threat of like, go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. And in two years, I'm going to want to leave. But I do think it's important to to stress like it's all of these little things add up to what does our daily life look like together? And if eventually you come to a point where you think, I honestly think I would rather just be um, friendly co-parents with this person as an ex and have like, you know, legal custody things that we know are expected of one another and I don't have to make everything into a battle. You know, I do think it's good to be honest with a partner when you feel like, you know, divorce isn't tomorrow, but it's certainly looking more and more appealing. Um, There are ways of bringing that up that are just wholly punitive. And then I think there are ways of bringing that up that are just like, I think it's good whenever possible to talk about divorce before you get to the point of like, I'm over it. I want to leave. And I think now is really the time because it seems like this person's kind of in the middle of like, everything's great otherwise. Like they're past that point, but they're not yet at the point of like, why am I even in this marriage? Yeah. And it's pointed out that this behavior became the norm gradually. So also set your expectations that any changes that do occur, those will probably also take place gradually. Your partner is not going to automatically snap into being exactly what you want them to be. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to, you know, take some steps, make some mistakes, adjust, come back to you and chat about it. So just be patient as things do start to spin out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's fair to say like both be patient, but also say like, I I would like to think that there's at least some willingness on your part to spend time with me, Um, both because we have a lot of shared responsibilities around our home and our kid and also because I love you and I married you because I like spending time with you, not because I want you to be awake when I'm asleep and vice versa. Um, And, you know, if as you kind of explain the ways in which this makes you feel isolated and not cared for, their response is sort of like, well... I love being up at 3 a.m., so big deal. Again, that's useful emotional information, and and I hope that you can, um, if you don't get a lot of uh, traction with your partner, that you can find, again, either a therapist or a friend that you can talk to about this. Not to say, like, start complaining to all your pals about your terrible marriage nonstop, but um, it, it will help, I think, if you feel like at least one or two of my close friends know that the struggle I'm having right now is our our you know, vastly different sleep schedules and a frustration with my partner's unwillingness to try to meet me in the middle so that you don't feel like I'm carrying the burden of this marriage all by myself. And, you know, that's really hard. I'm really sorry. It's really frustrating that your partner is um, prioritizing their preferences over your necessity. Mm -hmm. That's hard. And if you don't already have some earplugs or a white noise machine or a sleep mask or all of the above, I hope you can get some Get a weighted sleep mask. Mm-hmm. Mine completely changed my life. And they're a lot cheaper than those weighted blankets. They which are. can be very expensive. Um, all right. So we're just going to stay in the, like, tricky marriage uh, zone for a little while longer. And yeah, this next one's a real humdinger. Yeah. The subject is losing the desire. Dear Prudence, I am a 33-year-old woman married to a woman of the same age. We have been together for a few years. Like most people, when we started dating, we had sex several times a day, which eventually dropped down a healthy few times a week in the first year. Soon after we got married, it dropped to barely once a week, and lately it's been barely once every month or two. Anxieties about sex have been a consistent issue with us even before we got married. My wife has been on high doses of antidepressants for most of her life, and that lowers her drive. 
I get that, and I adjusted my expectations fairly early on in our relationship without any problem on either side until it dropped to this near nothingness. We have had several talks and arguments about the frequency of sex, and while the talk usually ends in understanding and resolutions to try harder to make time, it has just not got better. She makes every single excuse in the book, and I have tried a range of responses from cheerful understanding and agreeing to postpone sex to, quote-unquote, tomorrow, which literally doesn't come for over a month most of the time, to being honest about my disappointment and how it makes me feel. We have tried everything that she wants to try or is stimulated by, from vibrators that are an integral part of sex for us when it does happen, to porn, parentheses, which I don't love, but I do it, close parentheses, to a whole host of other things. But even though she will make innuendos to us having sex in a normal banter, it never actually happens. We have talked about it so much that even the thought of it gives me anxiety, and I basically don't want to have sex with her anymore, but I haven't told her that. I go along with her insinuating that we will have sex because I know it won't happen anyway, and I don't want to make things worse. Usually the post-sex rush lifts me up immensely, but lately I have actively disliked it. The last time I eventually pretended to climax so we could just move on. My own depression and confidence issues combined with her increasing lack of desire to have sex have me convinced that she isn't physically attracted to me. I always was and am still attracted to her. And we are extremely close, have lots of fun together, and I honestly can't imagine life without her. She says it is like that for her, too. I've often asked myself if I would rather have a life without sex or a life without her. If it comes down to that, and I would choose her in a heartbeat. I just wish there was some way we could repair this aspect of our relationship. This is a lot. Yeah. This is many, many things. Mm -hmm. Because... It is absolutely true that antidepressants and even just depression and anxiety will kill a person's sex drive. And the thing that stands out here is they have talked about this a lot with each other. Mm -hmm. And it seems like they're really struggling to move from a place of talking and understanding to a place where they can take meaningful action to rehabilitate the sexual side of their relationship. So if this hasn't come up already, I'm assuming that it hasn't. This is a great time to find a sex-positive therapist who specializes in queer couples, if that's an option for you wherever you live, Mm -hmm. and have a third party who can help you to articulate these really challenging feelings that you're having. And, you know, you can figure out Is it just circumstantial Mm -hmm. that I don't want to pursue sex with my partner anymore? Based on what you've said here, it feels very circumstantial. I think if you can reconnect in a way that's healthy for both of you, it's possible that that old spark will come back. But you've both just sort of been digging yourselves into a very unsexy hole Mm -hmm. for a number of years. That's a great um, and evocative phrase. And I think that's such a good point because I think the um, the way through this is going to be um, not making this about we have to keep talking about this so we can fix it and go back to having sex. Like the goal here, especially since you have a lot of clarity around like, look, if we don't have sex for a really long time or even ever again, I will be okay with that. I would still want to be in this relationship. I just want to find different ways to um, acknowledge what's happening between us right now. And it's already such a gift to know that, to know that this isn't a deal breaker for your relationship as a whole. 
to me, that's a great place to go into some kind of therapy and say, hey, this is not about let's shut it down. This is about how do we move forward as two people who may be quite different than we were when we started dating. Right. And yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. And I think the important thing for you, letter writer, is going to be to say, I want to take sex off the table for a little while right now, which might paradoxically feel like the wrong thing because it's like, oh, we're already barely having sex. If I say we need to not have sex at all right now, we might never do it again. But I think it's really important that you've identified the last couple of times we've had sex. It's gone really badly and I have faked it and I'm dreading it now. Like that's where um, you you really want to be honest with your partner and say, um, I, I, I want to see a counselor so that we can find ways to address the big fears that this brings up. But I also want to say the last couple of times that we've had sex, um, I, I felt some internal pressure. I felt some sadness. I felt some doubts about my own attractiveness that I really want to devote our time and energy to addressing that. Um, so it might feel paradoxically freeing to say for the next, you know, X number of months, sex is not on the table. And um, that that like we can find ways to say to one another either part of me wishes we were having sex right now or I have doubts about my attractiveness right now or I want to talk through the things that I'm afraid of right now without feeling like um, it is for the sole goal of having sex at the end of that. Yeah, take a little vaginal sabbatical and just see what happens, assuming that you both have vaginas. Sure. (laughs) Just, you know, making sure. Whatever's going on, you can take a sabbatical. Yes, take a sabbatical. And I think what gives me so much hope from this letter writer, you sound like you have a very happy, collaborative, vibrant relationship outside of this one issue. I'm sure that it has kind of gotten its hooks into some things outside of the bedroom and outside of your sexual connection. But you both are playing to win. Yes. You're not trying to tear each other down. Right. It's not like that last letter which had that kind of added challenge of like, my partner seems mm -hmm. indifferent to my distress. You both care. Absolutely. And you have proven yourself very willing to try new things for your partner. And I certainly hope that your partner is going to step up and try some things that you want to try, whether that comes down to sort of like specific sex acts or ways to engage, or if it is taking this break, talking to a professional, and seeing how you want to go together into the future. And I think to ask your partner, like, I think, like, to to say, I think this might be what you're thinking when you make jokes about sex. Either you want to kind of obliquely acknowledge the fact that we don't have sex much anymore, and you want to kind of diffuse some of the tension Or you're kind of hoping that talking or joking about it might make it um, feel a little lighter or that that might eventually lead to more sex. I want to, like, share with you, it actually hurts my feelings. It actually makes me feel um, like it's a reminder of something that's difficult um, or like you are kind of um, suggesting something might happen later that actually won't. So as as a gift to me, I would like to ask that we not make jokes about this. Or that if we find ways to joke about it, it's like in a safe, contained, therapeutic environment um, where we both feel a certain degree of safety. But like my big request for you right now is not let's start having sex more, but let's stop making jokes about this. Mm -hmm. That's what I need. And the other thing is this has gotten into enough of a cycle where I have enough doubts about my own attractiveness that I no longer feel excited about having sex. And that doesn't mean I have a lower sex drive than I used to. For me, what that means is that in order to feel really excited about sex, um, I need to feel a certain level of um, 
confidence and attractiveness and being desired desired by my partner. And I'm not feeling that right now. Um, and again, I don't think that your partner doesn't desire you. It, based on this letter, it really sounds like it's truly um, a side effect of both depression and antidepressants. Um, that doesn't mean that um, you're unreasonable for feeling that. I, I, I just I don't think it is that your your partner no longer desires you. But I think that, again, is good to bring up in therapy and to say, like, what are other ways that we can affirm our desire and, and affection and attraction to one another that's not sex? Absolutely. Um, and it can be hard, especially when you're talking about like sex and intimacy related fears with a partner, because it kind of can feel like, OK, I will tell you my fears and then you will either successfully reassure me out of them or we'll realize that I'm right and we just have to give up. And I don't think that that's the case. I think the importance of sharing these fears with your partner is now this is not hidden. Now you know what I'm insecure about. Um, now we have a new kind of intimacy that we didn't before. Now there's not an off-limits, an, an off secret, hidden part of, of me and my doubts that you can't know about. Because if you know them, then they're real. Um, there's so much power sometimes in just articulating those fears. Mm -hmm. And if you have been feeling like you're sort of out on a life raft all by yourself and you can't even express the things you're concerned about because you're too concerned about what they're concerned about and you're in this feedback loop where really nobody is communicating. Yeah. Yeah. And to just say, I don't want to have um, – everybody in a long-term relationship, I think, can have different relationships to certain forms of, like, maintenance sex. I, I don't want to suggest that it's always a bad idea to have sex where you're like, I love this person. I believe that I will uh, enjoy it. And I'm going to see how I feel if I get started. And I'll, I'm willing either to stop if I'm just not getting there or I'm willing to keep going if I discover I'm having a good time. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't want to make a one-size-fits-all ruling there. But if for you, you're saying this kind of sex makes me feel isolated, alienated, and kind of full of despair, it's really good to say, I don't want to have sex unless we're both equally excited about mm -hmm. it. So anything that would fall under the umbrella of maintenance sex or sex for me that you don't feel, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. That doesn't make me feel good. Um, and that's really important to name. And again, it, it may be hard for her to hear some of this. And that's why I think it will be helpful, as you said, to see it with a counselor, to see a counselor about this. So you're not just like uh, kind of making each other inadvertently feel worse because you've both hurt one another. It'll be good to have a yeah. professional, I think. Yeah. Um, and good luck. Yeah. I think this is a marathon, not a sprint, as they say. Agreed. I'm rooting for you, too. Yeah. I think I think you're going to get somewhere really cool. Yeah. And I think taking some of this off the table will make other forms of touch, other forms of affirmation, other forms of intimacy feel more immediately accessible because there won't be that additional pressure of, is this about to lead to bad and begrudging sex? Mm -hmm. um, when you just know that's not, we, we've, we've both agreed we don't want that. And I think you can really make some some real progress here. I, I'm right there with you. I'm reading yeah. them too. Our next letter oh is about wedding etiquette. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, this I am is too. like we're... the dear Prudy wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah, we're moving away from marriages and into weddings, which is great because weddings are much lower stakes than marriages. Yes. 
And the subject is made of honor in need of gratitude. Not only is that the subject, but I get to read this letter because you just read the last Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Should we go back? No, no, no. I love it. I love it. I Normally I forget and I have to keep asking the guests like, I'm so sorry. What just happened? But Danny, please read this letter because honestly I'm parched from the last one. It was very long. Thank you, Kelly. Yes, please enjoy one of the many, many bottles of water that are always in the studio. Beautiful. Uh, So the subject, as Kelly said, is made of honor in need of gratitude. Dear Prudence, very recently, I was the maid of honor in my best friend's wedding. During the entire year of planning, the unemployed bride was 90% focused on the wedding. The other 10% was focused on getting pregnant as quickly as possible afterwards. I live about a thousand miles away, and my contributions, for the most part, involved long-distance advice and remotely planning a bachelorette weekend in her hometown. I was also asked to make a garment to wear in the ceremony using a precious item from my existing collection. All of this was time-consuming, anxiety-inducing, and expensive. Let's not mention the part where I have major social anxiety and had to give a speech in front of the 100-person-plus crowd. Thank you, vodka. The bride and groom then gave a joint speech about themselves and the process of planning the wedding. Neither in that speech nor since... Have either of them bothered to thank anyone in the bridal party for their contributions or support? And I'm really hurt and feel like my efforts were not valued. Is it fair to expect to be publicly thanked for all of the effort and support I gave over the years and the many, many preceding years while she agonized over, quote, waiting to be asked? Or am I being a petty attention seeker? The resentment is beginning to build. I don't know if I should say something any del- uh, Sorry. I don't know if I should say something. Any delayed expressions of gratitude over social media would feel obligatory rather than genuine. And I don't know how to let it go and just move on. I would say, number one, yes, the bride and groom absolutely should have thanked you and their bridal party. That is just politeness. Anytime you ask somebody to donate, and this is essentially a donation, your time, your energy, your physical presence, it's not out of the question to expect to be acknowledged, whether that's to you in private or whether that's in front of everybody. There should have been some sort of appreciation that was expressed here. Um, That said, I don't think that your resentment is beginning to build. I think you've got a really huge mushroom cloud of resentment hanging over your head. And at this point, you know, it's up to you to decide how you want to disperse that that mushroom cloud. Um, it sounds like this is somebody who's been in your life for a really long time. And you sound pretty upset still about all of these years of the way that you characterize it here is kind of putting up with this friend of yours who then failed you by not acknowledging the sacrifices that you made to be part of their wedding. So I'm just curious at this point, like, what are you getting out of this friendship? And would confronting this person or possibly this person and her new spouse, what is that going to get you? What kind of closure will that get you? And how will you feel if you don't get the results that you're looking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm so there with you in terms of like, I, I, I do think that you would have loved to hear the thank you, but it sounds like this is way more than just the wedding. It sounds like you are also resentful of the years of what sounds like kind of one-sided conversations about her interests and anxieties about getting engaged, getting married, starting to have children. Um, so 
that's not to say that you should bring it all up in the same conversation of like, and by the way, I'm mad at you for the last eight years because that's a recipe for just blowing up a friendship. Um, but I do think it's really okay to, you know, wait a couple of weeks if they're out on their honeymoon and then reach out. And again, don't bring social media into it. Um, I, 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 It's clear at this point that you are not asking for that, but I want you to go in being aware of like, what do I want from my friend? And as you sit with this, you might think, I actually don't care. Um, I'm, I'm actually not interested in an apology. I mostly just want to get some distance from this person. That's legitimate. Um, if you want to share some of this uh, with your friend in the hopes that she can say, I can see that. I do really appreciate all the things that you did. I'm sorry that I didn't acknowledge it publicly. And I just want to stop now and say that you did a lot for me and it means a lot. And if that would feel useful and meaningful to you, absolutely have that conversation. Um, if you would like to, in general, make yourself slightly less available for conversations about I'm worried my boyfriend's not going to propose, I'm worried about the wedding, I'm worried about getting pregnant, it is also okay to say something like, hey, we've been talking about this a lot lately. Do you want if we take a break and talk about something else? And again, if her response to that is really big and upset, you can kind of say, I, I think we actually talk about this a lot and I would like to sometimes discuss other things. If you feel differently, that's okay. We can end this conversation now. Absolutely. And I'm also curious whether or not, I guess it says they never bothered to thank anybody. So I'm guessing there weren't thank you notes passed out at the rehearsal dinner. There wasn't some sort of private acknowledgement here. And I mean, if the letter writer is just looking to vent, um, if you're friendly with anybody else in the bridal party, you could potentially reach out to them and just say, hey, I'm feeling a kind of a way about this thing that happened and, you know, I'm just looking to express this and see if you had a similar experience. This could get very tricky mm -hmm. if this is somebody that you don't know and don't have this kind of rapport with. Um, it's something to consider if you do want to salvage this friendship. Um, I would probably put that as like a last ditch effort. Yeah. My, my inclination would not be to do that if only because I think that could feel more immediately satisfying because you would probably get someone who agreed with mm -hmm. you right away. And so the temptation there would be, let's kind of get the whole bridal party together and complain, which I could also then see eventually getting back to the bride if somebody else was like, people are talking shit about Absolutely. you. Um, but I do I do appreciate if if the other members of the bridal party are your very close friends and this is more of a like, I'm thinking about talking to the bride and I'm a little nervous about how to bring it up. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah. I That's see much that. more proactive. I was very like, let's set this up for reality TV. Yeah. And I, again, I get it. I think that that would feel a lot more um, immediately rewarding because or, or potentially everyone would just say, I don't know what you're talking about. I felt great about it. You're being a jerk. In yeah. which case you'd feel bad but yeah. I, I do think that this is um important to bring up with her it's important to bring it up in a way that is designed to reduce defensiveness wherever possible mm -hmm. such that if she does become defensive you'll at least know it's not because you said hey you piece of shit you're the most selfish bride ever to get married and you suck um yeah that was me yeah yeah. Don't steal my thunder. Sorry. Um, but yeah, it, it, if you give this one a little time and then just, you know, go back and say like, hey, I loved being at the wedding. It was a beautiful ceremony. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that it was important to you that I'd be in it. Here's something I noticed that was really hard for me, which is that you didn't thank me ever. And I don't think it's because you don't care about me. I, I can get that you were probably busy, but um, it really hurt. 
And I think when you share that with somebody so that it's not about like you're wrong and you lost this many points, but like I am your friend and I love you and I felt overlooked. If she doesn't respond to that, you know, then I think you have the information that you need, which is that she saw this as her thing and that you shouldn't have had any feelings or expectations of your own. And if her response to that is really bad, then I think, you know, I'm going to take a step back here. Um, but I hope she can look within and apologize and um, try to ask you a bit more about how you're doing. That's good advice. You should have a column. I think part of what's hard about this, especially when it comes to being in somebody's bridal party, is it's like, here is this huge public like affirmation of our friendship and how special we are to each other, which makes it harder to bring up things that are not working, mm-hmm. right? And so if you feel like everyone thinks I am this person's official best friend, but I actually feel really alienated and like I'm being asked to just show up more than just like, of course, somebody's wedding is mostly about their wedding, um, but like way beyond the bounds of just like, you know, I I think it is hard that oftentimes being in somebody's bridal party um, doesn't mean just like I show up on an important day, I make a lovely toast, I go to a nearby drinks reception with them a week or two before the ceremony. It's like I take on a role of active wedding planning for months on end Mm -hmm. with kind of no regard for whether or not I have the time, money, energy, resources to do that. That's a I, I think that's a recipe for alienating your. It friends. is, yeah. I say that all 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 while I am, uh, you know, planning my own bachelor party, um, with some pals, and I'm trying very much to keep in mind like, um, how to how to ask things nicely and to say like, obviously, if you can't, you know, get the time off, don't come. I would just. I think the acknowledgement is the important thing. You know, do what you want, make it your bachelor party. But also bearing in mind that you're saying, I really want you to be there. If you can't be there, that's cool. Yeah. I'm going to rent a house by the ocean and uh, we're all going to, you know, drink fizzy water and stare out the windows and talk about Big Little Lies. I was just going to say, oh, my gosh. The Big Little Lies Big Little Lies themed bachelor party. We're all going to wear cozy sweaters and say things like, I know my son was murdered. (laughs) And that's that's it. That's the like I've always known that my list of activities for any like pre-wedding celebration would be no activities. Yes. We will make tea. Perhaps we will look at some water, and then we will go to bed. Oh, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah, we're going to do a lot of... Mm. I'm in my 30s. We're going to sit Uh, and talk. I very want this for you. if you don't want to talk, you can just sleep. Yeah. And if you don't want to come, you can just hang out at home. Phenomenal. It's a very, You can sleep at home. Yeah, exactly. Sleep here, sleep at home. That's how I will feel the most celebrated. We're not trying to tell you how to live your life. All of you have a nice Friday evening. (laughs) Just do what you feel like. Hey. I cherish you. Don't even come to the wedding. We're not getting married. <laughs> we're we're moving away. Oh um, my gosh. So, uh moving on, it's your turn. You get to read this. It is indeed. Thank you for checking uh Diva that I am. This is another tough one. We are moving from the realm of weddings into the realm of families. Mm. Subject facing family after. Dear Prudence, when I was 17, I was invited to spend the night at my aunt's house. My father had a large family, and he was one of the oldest. My aunt was one of the youngest members, about seven years older than I am. She had expressed an unusual interest in my sexual development and asked for details about who I was dating and specifics about things that we had done. I did not tell her anything, but she gave me a tube of spermicide once, claiming she wanted me to be safe. But it was really weird. And once she told me that her husband really liked my swimsuit. Just odd things like that. 
But everyone was pushing me to go stay with them, so I went even though I wasn't really comfortable with it. I figured it would be fine. She was about six months pregnant at the time, and I must be imagining things. In any case, I was awakened in the night by my aunt. She told me that her husband was horny and wanted a blowjob, but she felt queasy from the pregnancy. So they were just wondering if I would be willing to do that for him. I said, no, I'm sorry. I have never really known what to call what happened. I feel like abuse isn't accurate because it's not compatible to what some women have had to face. But it was not okay. Now I'm in my 50s and I have managed to avoid them for the most part. I have done therapy and I have a great life. I never told my father what happened. I did tell my mother once. She just said that my aunt was gross, but don't tell my father because he would be devastated. My father's 80th birthday is coming up soon. We have been planning a party. My partner and my adult children will be there. It was supposed to be just my two brothers, their families, and my parents. I had rented a large vacation home for us, and I was really looking forward to it. But last night, my mother told me that my father's sisters will all likely be coming as well. They won't come to stay at our rental home, but I don't know how to handle this. I do not want to be in a room with them. I don't want to have them try to hug me or to make small talk with them. I also don't want to ruin my father's birthday by being rude or whatever. I'm really struggling with how to handle this. Do you have any ideas? Wow. So I think it is absolutely fine to call it whatever word you like. Definitely. Um, Just because they did not uh, physically force you to perform oral sex on her husband does not mean that it's not an inherently abusive thing to do to invite a teenage girl into your home, wake her up in the middle of the night and make a pass at her. Like that's just sure they didn't include physical force. But physical force is not the only um, line of trauma. And what they did was illegal. You Mm -hmm. know, inviting a teenager to perform sex acts on an adult is illegal. An underage teenager. Sorry, I got to be clarifying here. But like, yeah, it was illegal. It was immoral. It was wrong. It was coercive. It was deliberate. It was abusive. It was fucked up. Everything about it was bad. And you knew going in, you had a bad feeling. And... That can happen a lot in families where, you know, somebody who's a minor is pressured into interacting with family members because not everybody has all the information. Mm -hmm. I doubt anybody who knew about these sort of pointed questions that your aunt had been asking you and this tube of spermicide that she unsolicitedly gave to you would be like, hey, that's weird. And your mom knew. You know, when you told your mom about what happened, your mom was aware that there was something not quite right about these people. Yeah, and exactly. The other stuff, the like, here's something you could use for sex. Do you have a sex life? What's it like? By the way, my husband thinks you look really good when you're wearing a swimsuit. All of that was designed to test and erode your receptivity to a future, like, uh, you know, come on. So again, the fact that you felt weird going in is just because they were they were trying to groom you. Yeah. And you knew that that was not okay. Um, so I'm really sorry that people were at the time encouraging you to spend the night with them, that they were kind of doing that whole missing stare thing of like, everybody knows Mm -hmm. that this couple does weird stuff and says weird stuff. And we've decided the easiest way to deal with that is to pretend it's normal because otherwise we would have to grapple with the reality that one of our relatives is attempting to prey sexually on underage family members. Uh And that would make me very uncomfortable. So it's easier to help out the sexual predator. Yeah. 
that's super bad. It's very bad. I'm very upset. Um, so I'm so, so, so sorry. Um, I am also really sorry that the response when you eventually did tell your mother was... Um, Let's privilege your father's comfort right. over the very real emotional consequences this is having on you. Right. That's, uh, again, so bad. Your mother's response was horrible. Um, and I'm so sorry that that's what it was. Um, so I, I would say at this point, the only question here is what do you need? Like if you feel okay with, I actually don't really give a shit if my father's devastated about this. I don't really care if my other relatives feel uncomfortable. I'm tired of keeping this secret for their comfort. Then absolutely say whatever you need. If you feel like I don't want to have to deal with um the level of questions or pushback I might get, um, that is okay too. But I would also encourage you at that point to think about what could you, what support do you think is available to you if you did decide, I do want to push through this so that there are people in your corner when you do it. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes, uh, I basically, I just want you to feel like all the options are available to me and it's not just a question of I won't have any support so it's not worth trying if there is support you could be getting. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And I think, you know, if you make the choice that you don't want to blow this whole thing up, you could make a request to your family and say, hey, I thought this was going to be immediate family and our immediate families only. Can we get back to that? And you don't have to say why if you don't want to say why. Right. They may not acquiesce to that request. You know, how long are these people going to be in your orbit? Can you completely avoid them? It sounds like you've done a good job right. over the past couple of decades avoiding them. You shouldn't have to do this. I want to be very clear. You should not have to sacrifice your own comfort and right. sanity for these people. Right. Um, but again, as we talked about in the first letter, this is about you. This is about you doing what you're the most comfortable with right now at this time. Yeah. So I would say I, it's a little unclear to me if you've talked about this with your partner. You certainly don't have to. Um, if you think that your partner would be supportive, I hope that you can. Um, again, this is only if you think it would help you. Um, but like up to and including, by the way, like pretend you got the flu. Fake food poisoning, like everything is on the table for you. If you're if you're at a point where you're just like, maybe later I want to talk to my partner about this, but the pressure or the perceived emotional pressure of my dad's 80th birthday and all the attendant pressures that come with it, like he's old, he would have been devastated in his 50s, but now he's too old to be devastated. So you can never say anything. Like if you're worried you're going to get any of that, you have my full permission to fake food poisoning and and, you know, drive off and stay at a hotel and tell everyone that you were sick. Um, I think it's always so important in any situation you're in where you think there might be a really significant emotional reaction to something, mm -hmm. always have an escape route. Always make sure you have access to a car if you're a driver and you know, okay, if something happens and I got to get out of there, I have the option. Yeah. I have the ability yeah. to take myself out of this terrible situation. Yeah. I think you also, if you're looking for something that kind of blends um, both 
stating your own needs, but also if you don't feel ready to talk about this with other family members, because it's unclear to me who invited the siblings. Um, but your mother is the one who gave you that information. If you want to say to your mom, um, I will not be in a room with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to figure out how that's going to work. But I'm letting you know in advance, this is not an argument. This is not up for debate. I will not be in a room with them. If you invite them to something, I need you to tell me so that I can make arrangements not to be there. Yep. Um, and if she tries to give you any pushback on that, I think, again, at that point, you get to just say, like, I need to do what's right for me. And that means not being in the same room as somebody who tried to pressure me into having sex with her husband when I was a child. That's all you got to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say when I look at the end of your letter, you know, you say um, the thing that feels the most strong to me is I don't want to be a room, in a room with them. I don't want to have to touch them or make small talk. The additional like and I still feel residually guilty because of the shit my mom's told me about my dad. Mm-hmm. That feels so much less important to me. Again, I get that you care for your dad or whatever, but I, I would just say the line to hold here is you're not going to be in a room with them. You are not going to let them hug you. You're not going to make small talk with them. You never, ever, ever have to do that. And if other people um, feel embarrassed or self-conscious or guilty about the choices that they've made to protect these people, as a result, that's not your problem. That's not your job to fix. And it's not rude to prioritize your well-being. Yeah. Uh, you have rude here in quotation marks. So you know that. Yeah. Like, you know that it's more important to take care of yourself than to violate some perceived social etiquette, which was, in fact, violated long, long ago yeah. in a much worse fashion right. than anything you could do at this point. Yeah. I, I, again, I think you know this, but just to say it out loud, the person who would be ruining your father's birthday if your father was upset that his sister had at one point sexually harassed you um, – would be your father's sister. And if other people, I, I, I do understand that sometimes, often even, when somebody um, speaks the truth for the first time in a family about um, uh, sexual abuse or harassment, um, oftentimes there's a shoot the messenger response, but not always. Um, and, and that does not mean that they're right. So uh, if you decide to say, you know, I'm not going to be a room- in a room with them and here's why, that would not be ruining your dad's birthday. Um, that would be telling the truth about something that should not have happened. Um, and so any language about ruining, I think, would just be so important to just push back against and say, like, I'm not ruining anything. I'm being honest about something I was encouraged to lie about for a really long time. You were wrong to tell me to lie about it. You were wrong to pressure me and say that it was my responsibility to lie about the people who tried to hurt me, to protect my grown-ass adult father whose job it was to protect me at the time. And I'm not going to um, help you perpetuate that lie any longer. Yeah, no edits. That's a great response. And I'm just, you know, I'm so sorry. Of course it feels painful and awful that not only were you told, keep this under your hat, but now you're getting told after you've already invested money and plan to, like, go away as a family. By the way, these people are going to be here. Like, I don't know if your mom invited them or if they invited themselves. They certainly know what they did to you. Uh-huh. Um, so the fact that there appears to have been a sort of coordinated effort to um, get themselves involved in another quiet family retreat um, after the fact suggests to me that they kind of know that you have a reason to not want to be around them and that they're doing this on purpose to try to get past your defenses. Um, And I, you know, I certainly don't want to, um, I know, I know we talked in a recent letter about how it's not um, anyone's responsibility that sexual predators don't commit actual sexual predation. But like, I think you, you know, 
you you have reason to be concerned that they would either try to you know harm you again or your children mm-hmm. um, and that safety is a real concern for you here and I totally totally get if you need to prioritize that yeah and hey I'm proud of you yeah um, yeah yeah I, you know I'm so glad that you've been able to kind of understand despite all the messaging you've gotten to the contrary that what happened wasn't okay it was so beyond not okay it's just straightforwardly bad yeah in every sense and you know I, I just yeah I can't imagine the kind of mental calculation you'd have to do at 17 to think like well she's pregnant so I bet she wouldn't try to sexually harass me right now yeah is already you've been put in such a position that no child should ever have to be in absolutely not and I'm so, so, so sorry that you're in a different version of that scenario now. And I would just say, again, everything's on the table for you. Yep. So the question's just, what do I need? What do I want? How do I go about getting it? Um, and not giving any quarter to push back. And I hope, I'm not, I'm not going to finish that sentence. I don't care for your mother's choices. Cosign. Is, is, is the strongest thing that I will say about that. Um, and frankly, I think that birthdays are less important than not sexually harassing children. So your family has its collective priorities out of whack if they think it's more important to have a fun cake, uh, than to not sexually harass children. Yeah. That's like, that's a pass fail that no one should fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if those are your two options and you pick cake, you need to try again and, and, and go back and possibly never be given cake again. I was going to say, and I love cake, but I would gladly give up cake. Not a contest. No. Yeah, not a contest. Um, Kelly, thank you so, so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. This was delightful. I had a blast. Please come back anytime. Thank you. I would love to. I would love that too. And uh, get out of here. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. Leave. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And on today's plus segment... I'm curious as to whether your sexual and romantic relationship predates the business that you're in together. Right. And sort of how does that dynamic play out on on both sides? You know, is the business affecting your personal involvement? Is your personal involvement affecting the business? Is the photography business the business of processing naked photos, either of the, you know, creep shot variety or, you know, the extremely professional, everybody's consenting, there are contracts signed kind of thing? Right. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.